Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 208 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday, August 16th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, we really have one thing we want to talk about today. Yeah, it's uh, it's a day to talk about Afghanistan. Yes. And it's uh, probably best to begin on a, a note of a sympathy and compassion for the people of Afghanistan uh, many of whom are in a horrific spot right now. Um, there are all kinds of, I would say, entirely predictable stories of the abuses uh, that are occurring and the in the terror of abuses yet to come that are unfolding there. And so entirely apart from whether the withdrawal is the right thing, whether it's been handled appropriately, there's, there's just a fact on the ground there about what people are experiencing now that Taliban rule has so comprehensively returned. Uh, and, it, and it's a it's a tragedy. I, I mean, that's that has to be the, the the starting off point is that, you know, finger pointing aside. And I want to talk a bit about the finger pointing because, boy, was it a bad weekend to be on the Internet. Um, <laughs> but finger pointing aside, I mean, the human tragedy of all of this is has to be the first headline because, you know, as much as people want to try to score points off of this, I think the most important point to make is that there are very real people whose lives are going to be forever altered and for the worse by, you know, not just this weekend's events, but by really the events of certainly the last few years, but especially the last um, 18 months since the Doha agreement. Well, so... As, as law professors, where do we dive into it? What's so our I, I, I thought it would be helpful. So I, I thought I thought I, I viewed our conversation as happening in three parts. Um, the first was just sort of information sharing, right? Just sort of because I think some of our, you know, obviously some of our listeners know more about this than we do, um, and so sure. this is going to be incredibly basic. But I suspect there are some folks who have not been following the evolution, who are surprised. That, that we were even in the position at all, let alone at the speed, right, with which the Taliban overran and sort of reclaimed all this territory and all these capitals. So I thought maybe the first part would be just putting this in context. And then the second part would be the sort of our bread and butter, the legal implications. Okay. Um, and then insofar as I can bait you into a policy and politics discussion, um, <laughs> a little bit at the end about just how, like, how angry I was over the weekend at a particular class of national security commentator, um, basically blaming all of this on the Biden administration. Um, and and not just a particular class of national security commentator, um, members of Congress whose last name is Cheney, blaming this all on the Biden administration. Uh, although actually, I should say, Congresswoman Cheney at least blamed it on both Biden and Trump. But to me, Bobby, like the story is that there is... A huge difference. Of, what's that? I was just saying, there's a, there's a huge difference between blaming it all on Biden and blaming it on Biden and Trump. So but I want we'll, we'll get to that. I, 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 will mean, say, I mean, I want to manage expectations uh, as is often the case. I, I'm not wanting to, nor following, nor am I following the politics of it. Yeah. Mostly. Um, I, 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 on the policy aspects, which are, you know, are the main thing, the law is not the driver here. Right. As, as is often the case, but especially here, um, I don't claim a lot of expertise. I'll, I'll pitch in my two cents, but I'm I'm, but, a, I'm I, wary on that. I just want to say, I mean, so 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 am I, and I, but I do I do think that there is plenty of blame to go around, and that you know I, I just I am as someone who feels like I followed this fairly closely and certainly more closely than the average American. Um, 
you know, I think there have been missteps made by Bobby each of the last four presidents. Um, some well, from, well, it goes without saying, right? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, not if you read the internet. And so, of course, there's no, my problem. Again, my message to you is always is, but don't. don't but don't read the internet. And, and, and don't. Don't let that be the frame. That's I feel I like that's such a part of the problem we all have is that we allow the framing to be done and the agenda setting to be done by the loud voices that we see in social media. But, Bobby, but, but some of those loud voices are people who you and I, you know, in other contexts would take seriously. And so I just I want to that's why I think it's important for us to not just have the first two parts of this conversation, but at least a little bit of the third. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see how far we can get with it. If okay. uh, if you're pushing, so, I'm pulling. So timeline. I mean, I think. It, what, to understand how we got to this weekend, don't you think we have to start with Doha? Um, it, it's almost, you know, I want to like pull Steve Cole's book off the shelf and yeah, start with chapter one of Ghost Wars. But, um, and probably that's not even early enough, but sure that we got a parachute in somewhere. Um, and I, I take it that one point you want to make is that we've been, we've had a process underway, a uh, negotiation process underway. That has, uh, you know, one, one little factoid that probably most people don't realize, you know, there's the, the leader of the Taliban, the guy who has effectively come out on top at the end of all this, uh, Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar, uh, Baradar meaning brother. Uh, Mullah Baradar was in custody, he was in a Pakistani jail. The Trump administration requested his release to facilitate the peace process. Um, and there have been a number of folks who are prominent in the Taliban today, this the victorious Taliban, uh, who have been in custody at earlier times in various places, not just the United States, but he's a prominent one. Um, so, Steve, you bring up Doha. What exactly was going down at Doha? What was the nature of the diplomacy here? So, you know, President Trump, as we have discussed before, you know, made sort of a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and an end to the one of our endless wars um, a policy priority. And if I recall our conversation, and Bobby, if I'm if I'm summarizing this in any way that's incorrect, please jump on me. But if I recall, you and I were of the were, were sort of not averse to the notion that the U.S. should be looking for a way out of Afghanistan, but we're worried about sort of the way we were doing it, right? And we're worried about the the suddenness with which the you know President Trump seemed to make this a priority and the implications of doing it without some sort of broader strategic thinking. So, I on as with most. Trump foreign policy uh, initiatives. I was I was always in generally worried about whether and to what extent there was a serious, rigorous, uh, larger strategy, uh, and for good reason. I don't recall what I may have said on the show previously about the extent to which withdrawal uh, of some description made sense. Yeah. Uh, and so it could be what I'm about to say maybe isn't consistent with what I said before. But I, I will say certainly that having had a lot of reason to think about it closely in recent days. Um, Whatever one makes of the wisdom of deciding over the earlier periods of the past 20 years to try to uh, build out what amounts to a, a, a type or a variant of nation building mission, nation sustaining mission, um, whatever the wisdom of that, when we got to where we are in recent years, uh, in the most recent years, one way to describe it is we have a relatively have had or did have a relatively small footprint, expensive, sometimes all too dangerous, but but not full on combat operations in the way it had been in years before model that was not defeating the Taliban, 
but was sustaining, as, as we now can see, entirely sustaining uh, the government itself and, and keeping the Taliban's ability to, to surge forward limited. It's crystal clear now just how much of that was entirely dependent on us. It, it basically, it was entirely dependent on us. Uh, but there's a lot to be said if you compare what the situation is now with what the situation was before. It's it's not immediately obvious that this is a this situation. In fact, I would say it's rather obvious that this is not a preferable situation. The, the interesting question is, was there a responsible path right. that could have changed from that prior expensive and challenging, but nonetheless comparatively right. very stable, relatively speaking, status quo to something better than there is now, but that, that wasn't just a continuation. So and, I guess, and if there isn't, if there wasn't such a path, it's a serious question. Should we not have simply maintained that prior uh, posture? So I, I guess, Bobby, I, I want to push back on the, a bit on the on the assertion that it was a stable status quo, um, right? I mean, I know that that is the perception that a great many of us have just because there weren't frequent news stories about significant changes in Afghanistan. There hadn't been, I think, a U.S. Mil, a, a combat fatality in Afghanistan since early last year. And so I think folks assumed things were stable. And my sense of the universe is that behind the scenes, the Doha agreement set in motion a whole lot of stuff that destabilized things in ways that we didn't see, um, right? That that once the U.S. signed an agreement to first reduce the size of the U.S. force um, from 13,000 to 8,600 by July, and then followed by a full withdrawal within 14 months, um, that we failed to appreciate how demoralizing that was to the Afghan military and the government and how empowering that was to the Taliban. Um, and that, you know, basically what happened was things started to fall apart that we couldn't see. So that for those who think that Biden, President Biden can and should have, you know, sort of put boots back on the ground or like, first of all, right, that the current level of the force wasn't going to be sufficient given how much things had been crumbling and that to actually reinforce the Afghan army to actually stop the Taliban was going to require a much more dramatic reinvestment of personnel into Afghanistan. Like that's, that to me is I think where the narrative is, I think a bit disputed, right? About just sort of how stable things were. So I agree in part and disagree in part. So I agree very much that is like in any other context, if you say in the negotiation, by the way, by this state, we're out, the other side has strategically prevailed at that point, which may be fine. That may be what, what one should allow to happen, but they prevailed and it's just a waiting game, or in this case, it turned out to be an acceleration game uh, before you get there. So yes, that you've kind of given the, the store away at that point. Um, whether that alone, I, I guess what I'm where I'm quibbling is nonetheless, until the uh, until the force drop below a certain point and the and the support level, including the presence of contractors, and until those pillars of stability are actually removed, and they weren't removed at quite the scale before that, that we saw now, um, you, they, you could nonetheless have kept on, but, but most importantly, uh, one didn't have to follow through on that. One could decide that this isn't working and we're going to chart a different course. So I, I, I totally, so I, I want to be clear. I totally agree that the Biden administration had every right to come in 
and say, we actually think this was a bad deal. We think this wasn't going to work. And I guess I just think that's the that's the long-term debate, which is what was the alternative at that point? Like 10 months after the Doha agreement, when President Biden sworn in, right? What were the realistic options other than continuing the withdrawal? Because it seems to me that the, I mean, my, so, so anyway, let's get back to the story. So, um, in May, right, the Taliban begins this sort of coordinated offensive. Um, it turns out it doesn't require a lot of fighting. Um, there's a very good story in the Washington Post from yesterday about how there have been all of these sort of yep. back channel and under the table deals between the Taliban and regional commanders and local heads of security forces sure. to basically just like lay down their arms when the time came. Right. And, and of course, when you when you know that the United States is leaving, they've said they're going to leave. It's not that surprising that this would happen. Right. And so, you know, as uh, so basically outsiders, I think, were a lot more surprised at the speed with which the offense succeeded than folks who were in country because you know, they understood that there was there wasn't going to be fighting. This was not really a war. There was not like a conflict between the Afghan army and the Taliban where the Taliban prevailed. The Taliban just sort of, it, it was a walkover um, in every respect that mattered, which is part of why it went so fast. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Um, and I think part of why U.S. estimates about how long before Kabul would fall, which were, I think, as late as early last week, 30 to 90 days, um, were way off. Yep. 30, 30 days or five. Well, as the case may be. Um, but, but that, you know, it seems to me the, 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 the question, I guess, I guess the question of, of whether we can agree on something, like it seems to me that absent a pretty significant reversal of U.S. policy, the Doha agreement put us on track for this result. Yeah, my, the only thing I'm quibbling over, and again, I, I'm not an expert on this, so I'm really reluctant to try to take any kind of hard positions, but... My impression is that it is only of late that we tipped over to the, this is over, they're coming, and it's time now for those deals you just mentioned to be executed upon, meaning that the the ANA basically put down its weapons. That wasn't happening before. It certainly wasn't happening back in, you know, January, February, March, April. Um, It's it's a recent phenomenon. There, There was time, if the administration wanted to, there was time to decide instead to stay with the uh, expensive, difficult, unsatisfying, but relatively stable status quo. They could have undone it, um, but they certainly weren't in this for that reason. They were they were trying, in fact, to get out. In this, the Trump administration and the Biden administration were like-minded. They wanted to end the U.S. sustained decades-long commitment to Afghanistan. They were eager to do it. Now it's been done. It's the, the finale here. I just don't think that anybody can really argue that this was the way to do it. it, it no, it just, no, no. And I don't think I, so, I'm not so saying I you are. I'm just right. saying that this is there, there's a separate question about whether they should have completed the withdrawal or should they have stayed with the sustained painful status quo we had before or some version of it. But in any event, they decided as, as was the, the, the president's right, this decision was to stay with the Trump policy. And so the, the Trump Biden in the war policy was the choice, but then it's a question of okay, so how to implement this, how to do this, right? No, no. so so there to me, there's no question that the Biden administration really dropped the ball, right? That 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 the insufficient planning, the insufficient efforts to evacuate personnel from Kabul, the you know wildly over optimistic views of how long Kabul could hold out, 
Um, like that to me is a much, so, so it seems like there are two different pieces of the conversation, right? What would it have taken to actually prevent the Taliban from, from taking the country over, right? That's a big, that's one conversation versus once that result became inevitable, or at least once the Biden administration, once President Biden decided that he was sticking to the plan, right? What could have been done to ease, to, to sort of, you know, avoid the chaos of this weekend and today, yeah. right? The ongoing chaos that we're seeing on Twitter. And to ensure, so to ensure, and, and there's sort of two fundamental elements here. Again, if we're assuming, all right, so we're leaving, the, the Taliban are in fact going to take over. What are, what are the two sort of must-haves as a matter of policy to do that in the least painful way? One is the, the safe and effective removal of everyone who's leaving the country from the US and allied side. And dare I say it? And their papers and their files and the most valuable of the equipment, especially the military equipment, which is now so much of it in Taliban hands. Uh, and then, morally, the most important part, frankly, uh, doing right by those who cooperated with us, whose lives are now endangered, yes. and, and 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 so forth. So, and it's not just the interpreters. The interpreters no. are very obvious and visible, but there's a lot more than that. Uh, there's a whole lot more than that. And the way things unfolded by by not doing the what would have been a painfully slow and awkward process that might at times feel like it was working against the larger policy goal of withdrawal, um, the space to reasonably effectively get everyone out, especially from amongst the Afghans who needed to get out. I mean, that's been a real. That's where the real fiasco lies. Is my impression is that most. Americans, most non-Afghan allies are getting out, although I don't know there's questions today about flights not getting out of the airport at Karzai International. Um, but there's it just seems crystal clear at this point, there's just a lot of people who need to get out, whose lives are in danger, who should have been brought out, who probably did not get out in the wave that that managed to get in just under the wire and are not going to get out later. There's no, there's no getting out later for most of these people. Um. All right. So that's, I mean, that's now the humanitarian crisis, right? Which is, I have no doubt that the U.S. citizens and U.S. personnel are going to be safely evacuated from Kabul, but there are literally tens of thousands of, you know, folks who have applied for what are called civs, special immigrant visas, or just, you know, old fashioned refugees, right? Where, you know, I, it's not clear to me at all that we have a plan in place for actually accommodating those folks. We may have a plan, but I mean... <laughs> Come on, right. what would it look like at this point? We're we're gonna we're gonna land a plane uh, with uh, Taliban air traffic controllers uh, happily directing us to these people. Yeah, what a mess. All right, so should we turn to the law? Yes, please. So, um, I mean, let's start with the the easy part, right? Which is there's no legal question about the president's power to have made all these decisions, right? I mean, this is bread That's and right. butter. President as commander in chief, president exercising statutory authority. All oh, the Oregon, Sol Oregon doctrine. Yep. Well, so. I don't know. I, I don't even think you need the Sol Oregon. I mean, I think, I think, I think there's no question. Even, even, even to critics of broad presidential war power would agree that you know a war Congress has authorized is subject to direction and you know scaling down by the president. No, look, uh, Sol Oregon is a if, for those who are. For the uninitiated, Sol Oregon is a phrase that originates with John Marshall when he was in Congress, but becomes famous in constitutional law discourse uh, when it is used in the uh, 1930s Supreme Court case uh, known as Curtis Wright Export Corporation. 
when it's used as the shorthand for the idea that there is a not just a narrow set of foreign affairs discretion or foreign policy setting discretion in the president, but perhaps a whole panoply of, of broader executive branch inherent powers. Uh, I'm using it in the not expansive sense and just that core sense that, as you say, Steve, I think there's widespread consensus that the president was intended and is in our constitutional structure uh, intended to be the the voice of the United States in inter- interactions with other countries, including uh, negotiating agreements and and perhaps the most concrete manifestation of all is in negotiating the, the termination of hostilities or the ending of hostilities or things related to that, which is DOA and what's happening now. The decision to withdraw the forces, there's no serious objection or there's no serious claim that either President Trump or President Biden somehow were acting ultra vires. I don't think it's a serious argument. Haven't seen anybody making it. So what next after checking that box? So I think the, the messier question is, what, if anything, does this mean for the AUMF? And, and, and relatedly, Guantanamo and those other things tied to the AUMF. So I will go on a limb, not a limb necessarily, but I'll say something that maybe if, if many people might be assuming this means that ah, so the AUMF's vitality has just been sapped mightily, maybe even it's practically been sapped of all vitality, I'd say rather the opposite, because the practical effect of this may well turn out to be um, a bit of a revival for Al-Qaeda itself. At the end of the day, what gives the AMF its vitality, first and foremost, is the existence and vitality, or not, of Al-Qaeda. The Taliban, yes, foreshadowed in the text of the AMF, anticipated in the text of the AMF as the harboring entity with reference to the text of the AMF, but, but never the main event, though, of course, for obvious reasons, they've been a, a focal point for 20 years. Um, but insofar... And, and by the way, it's not at all clear we're not going to be using force against the Taliban. But assuming we are we're out of the business of using force, we're probably not going to recognize them, but we're, we're not going to plausibly be still engaging in hostilities with them. But the chances that one could plausibly say that Al-Qaeda is still present and operational, the chances that we might have facts on the ground that support those sorts of claims, uh, I think are increased with the Taliban in full control of the country rather than what the status quo was before, where the ability of the Taliban to provide any sort of safe haven to Al-Qaeda, uh, it was there, it was happening, but it was all very muddy and unclear. It may be much more clear now, and we may be reverting back to what's more like, uh, I guess, maybe a late September 01 phase for the AUMF, where we're not at that moment, except for things that are beginning to bubble up on the covert side and the, the special ops side. Um, we're not actually engaged in contact with the Taliban, but we were very focused on Al-Qaeda. So maybe that's a phase we're running into, but anyways, bottom line, AMF not directly impacted in a way that takes away all of its predication. That's point one. Point two is the, as you and I have talked about on the show endlessly over the years, um, the extent to which one can plausibly connect the AMF to the law of armed conflict, it's always been strongest with reference to things that look like armed conflict in Afghanistan and the combat mission there has always been sort of the center of gravity for, well, maybe there's questions about whether LOAC law of armed conflict applies to this drone strike in this remote location. But hey, here in Afghanistan, you've got the Taliban in the field and the US and its Afghan allies are at least sometimes in the field. And so you've got armed conflict of a real deal sort there. 
So now you've got a full Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. The United States is entirely out. Does that perhaps weaken the AMF in the, in the nuanced sense of making the law of armed conflict underpinnings rest entirely on what was always the most controversial aspect of invoking the armed conflict model vis-a-vis al-Qaeda, this idea that you may not have anything anywhere that looks like combat operations. You may only have, from the al-Qaeda side, uh, planning and and execution of terrorist attacks highly periodically and periodic uses of force by the United States in response, but on a pace that calls into question the law of armed conflict model's relevance. So that's what I think the consequence of this is going to turn out to be. So I went back this morning and I reread Justice O'Connor's plurality opinion in Hamdi, um, which contrary to popular belief, I have not committed to memory. Um, And I I wanted to quote what I think is a a passage we've talked about before, but I'd forgotten it was quite this specific. Um, So she says, um, Hamdi contends that the AUMF does not authorize indefinite perpetual detention. Um, Certainly we agree that indefinite detention for the purpose of interrogation is not authorized. Further, she says, We understand Congress's grant of authority for the use of necessary and appropriate force to include the authority to detain for the duration of the relevant conflict, and our understanding is based on longstanding law of war principles. Here's the the line. If the practical circumstances of a given conflict are entirely unlike those of the conflicts that inform the development of the law of war, that understanding may unravel. But that is not the situation we face as of this date, period, next sentence, active combat operations against Taliban fighters apparently are ongoing in Afghanistan. If the record establishes that United States troops are still involved in active combat in Afghanistan, those detentions are part of the exercise of necessary and appropriate force and therefore are authorized by the AUMF. So, you know, I guess I am not as sanguine, Bobby, that the quite noisy withdrawal of the United States um, and the quite clear takeover of the Taliban in Afghanistan, if we're not going to be continuing to engage in acts of armed force against them, um, satisfy at least Hamdi. Now, that doesn't mean there's no detention authority. It means we are now outside the Hamdi holding. Well, and I think so, that's what I was saying, right? I mean, I, I thought you were going to say, see, you and you and O'Connor are on all fours. That, the O'Connor quote you read was exactly the point I was making. Oh, okay. Well, then I, I thought I thought there was daylight there. I guess I was disagreeing with yeah, that. Yeah, what I'm saying there. is yeah, previously, it's always been the case that there's some inside baseball here about uh, – who's held at Gitmo, which is the, the only location where these things get litigated, right? There's all kinds of other uses of force under color of the law of armed conflict, but you only have the Gitmo detention cases that result in sort of judicial exposition of it all. All the cases that have been upheld as proper uses of law of armed conflict-based detention authority uh, at Gitmo, they almost always have some nexus back with the armed conflict with that with Afghanistan, not always so direct as the Hamdi example, Yasser Hamdi's example, where he was, you know, sort of taken in the field, et cetera. Um, but th- there's always some element of that that makes it relatively easy following Hamdi to say, look, as long as we're still fighting in Afghanistan, which in, in, until extremely recently we were, um, then then O'Connor's uh, projection of what it would be like otherwise was neither here nor there. And it's always been clear that if we were to ever leave Afghanistan, if that ended, then yeah, we'd be in that open terrain where it's not so obvious that the law of armed conflict even applies at all. Because it's not so obvious, though the US government still would maintain the position that there is an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda. It has always maintained that position for 20 plus years or coming up on 20 years. Um, 
And now that would really be put the test because to the test, because now there's no longer any one place you could say, well, look, it's definitely an armed conflict there. We're only arguing about what about other locations. Now there only are other locations. Yeah. So we're, we're at that post O'Connor moment. Now, might this be helpful to the Gitmo detainees? You and I have been saying for, for years that yes, when this moment is reached, then the Gitmo litigation will provide a, a flashpoint the only flashpoint that touches the judicial system in the United States, where the courts may say, yeah, you know what? The underlying law of armed conflict detention authority is gone. There's some tricky statutory interpretation questions with the uh, ye old NDAA fiscal year 2012 from December 2011 and its detention authority and whether it is written in a way that unwinds if the underlying armed conflict claim unwinds, but that, that could be. Um, that's a little bit the tail wagging the dog, as important as the Gimmo cases are. That's that's the, the big issue going forward is, is this not just the unwinding of the limited set of Gitmo detention cases, but if, if the courts in that context were to say, no more AUMF because the armed conflict itself has ended, well, that has implications for all the other contexts in which the United States military yep. might be asked to use force under color of the law of armed conflict. You'd have a, a really serious issue there. Now, let's be clear that that doesn't mean that therefore no missiles would be fired. No. Another thing we've talked about endlessly is, is the question of when, it's, when, you're, when you don't have a claim of armed conflict, what does it look like historically when the executive branch intends nonetheless to use lethal force? And I, my, my article post-war goes into great detail about this for many years ago now, but it was all written with this scenario in mind. And what, what I write in that article is that if you look at the history of uses of force, 1998, 1986, all these prior terrorism-related uses of force the United States engaged in, there's no claim of armed conflict. The United States will periodically use force in self-defense. Um, there have been lots of signals over time, including during the Obama administration. They would have that sort of fallback posture. And I think the, the takeaway is, you know, detention, which is already just a legacy thing anyways for a small number of people, detention is more fully swept off the board, but periodic use of force, not so fully swept off the board at all. And it'll be super controversial. I'm not saying it would be everyone agreeing that, yes, the United States has this standalone self-defense authority involving the use of force. Um, but saying that the AUMF is dead won't mean that missiles aren't fired. I agree. I just think that that there is a there are a series of assumptions baked into the DC Circuit's Guantanamo detention jurisprudence that the events of this weekend have really put pressure on. Yeah, I think we totally agree about that. I mean, there everyone who's not everyone there litigates their circumstances, but the ones who do uh, have a perfectly reasonable basis now for a successive habeas petition raising changed circumstances of a very salient kind. The so, potential argument that the armed conflict now is over. Wasn't over when Obama said combat operations right. were over because right. we were still actually doing them. Right. But, but now, hmm. What about Hamid Dolan? What do you think? So, I mean, just to remind folks, so Hamid Dolan is a, oh gosh, Russian? I, I, I always, I I always forget. Um, but so he was convicted right in, gosh, the Eastern District of Virginia, um, right, um, for various hostile acts committed on the battlefield where the big fight was over whether he was entitled to combat immunity as a Taliban fighter, right? Um, 
do you think there's any argument that there's some kind of like now that the Taliban might actually be is the de facto and might even be the de jure government of Afghanistan that he might be entitled to some kind of relief or you can't, well, he, can't, he couldn't he couldn't make that claim you know that that's yeah chronologically it doesn't make it doesn't link up to when he was yeah that's right yeah but yeah, it's just probably not I mean, yeah. no that's right um and okay, so here let's get to the issues. So there's your AMF and in Article Two issues. We we've been kicking this around and anticipating this for a long time. There they are upon us. Maybe not this. Well, but we we knew something something some like variation this. on this. So here's some interesting questions. Uh, when the Taliban previously controlled what was it, ninety eight percent of the territory is everything but the Panjshir Valley, which by the way, like you know the site of, you know, there, there is no Northern Alliance. They're all gone. Um, and the Taliban control the Panjshir Valley. It's really something for those of us who were paying close attention in the nineties and in, in the early 2001 period. Um, but with, uh, the Taliban fully in control of the entire country, will there be more diplomatic recognition this time around? Very few States recognized the Taliban previously as the actual, government of, Af- of Afghanistan at the time. Uh, I believe at one point the peak was maybe the UAE, Pakistan, maybe the Saudis, but I don't think it ever was more than two or three countries, certainly the United States and, and most of our uh, NATO and such allies never recognized them in charge. Um, are we are we likely, Steve, do you think, to, to take it differently this time? Or does that depend entirely? Is that like the little tiny bit of leverage we're going to try to uh, hold over Mullah Bardar and his colleagues, hoping, I guess we've got sanctions and we've got diplomatic recognition and the, the international community on the whole collectively has a lot of leverage that the Taliban 20 years ago didn't care much. Or are they going to be different now? Um I don't Maybe know if we're lucky, the desire to uh, have a, a slightly better access to the international system and to get out from under sanctions. If we are very, very lucky, this will cause them to moderate the abuses of the Afghan people that otherwise, well, some of that's already happening anyways. Um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that other than just realize it's not like anybody, most people recognize them as the legitimate government before. Now, do we have no choice? You can always choose not to recognize him, but will we? (sighs) That is a messy question all into itself. And, you know, what's really going to complicate, Bobby, is I'm sure there will be other large powers in the world that will. Well, look, it's not hard to imagine that Beijing will decide that, yeah, we'll recognize you and we would like to cut the following deals with you. And we want to get in China has longstanding uh, mineral interests there that it's it's national interest in Afghanistan in part has been that. Um, and there's 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 a number of ways in which you might imagine that some countries will be quicker this time around, especially if the Taliban leadership has gotten a little savvier and knows how to paper over some of its abuses in a way that it wasn't motivated to, didn't try to do before. I don't think they're going to stop the abuses entirely. Um, so there's that question. Um, there, I guess, are questions about sovereign debt. I don't know any of the details here, but I, I have to assume that the government yep. of Afghanistan uh, had a, a substantial amount of debt. And uh, is that going to be, is that going to be waived for the benefit of the Taliban? That's hard to imagine. Um, so is there going to be anything done to 
you know, when, when they can't collect on it, who knows? Um, what are the legal issues pop out to you, Steve? So many, I mean, the, the immigration questions, the refugee law questions, I mean, you know, we're going to, this is a mess. We're going to be cleaning up legally for, you know, five, seven years. And that's without regard to the price we're going to pay morally. Yep. All right. Well, um, have we, have we said all there is to say? No, I have, I have to, I have to rant a little bit about the, about the, the former Bush and Trump, uh, uh, government officials saying this is all Biden's fault. Are you sure you want to rant? You might be happier if you skip the rant. Can we just agree that that's nonsense? I look, I don't even know what the, that is in this sentence. Okay. How about, I will give you an example, right? Um, so Jamil Jaffer, who we both know, um, right, who is, um, right, who's the director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University, right, and who was in the Bush administration, both DOJ and the White House, um, spent a whole chunk of the weekend tweeting about this is 100% Biden's fault. This is all on Biden. This is the Biden administration's mess, right? Um, and it just seems to me that we ought to be able to sort of acknowledge that, yes, the Biden administration... Cata, you know, catastrophically bungled how quickly this was going to fall at the very end, but that the seeds of this were planted certainly no later than the Doha agreement, and I would argue quite a bit earlier. Well, look, I said my piece on this. First, first of all, I, I have no idea what particular people have been saying, so I don't want to. I do not want to try to respond, not knowing what those things were. But as I said before, there there are two huge issues, and they're both a big deal. One's the decision to withdraw simpliciter, right? And, and that is one that the Trump and Biden administrations share jointly. It's a, it's a common policy. Second is the execution of this stage, the, the end game stage. I'm of the view that the execution of the end game stage has been a, a catastrophe, is a debacle. If that's what Jamil was talking about, then I'm with Jamil. Uh, if, he was, if he was talking about the decision to withdraw as a general policy, and not acknowledging that the Trump administration also had this policy, then then that's not right. But I don't I don't know where he was on this, and I don't I don't want to try to parse the positions without knowing what people really said. I mean, I'm I'm just quoting to you what he said, but okay. I just I, I just think that like the you know this ought not to be partisan. Like there is plenty of blame to go around that has nothing to do with which side you're on in the current partisan political climate. Yeah. Look, I, you know, how I feel about, I don't, I don't even like talking about partisan politics, let alone the reality of partisan politics. But the, the critical thing I think is what we said at the top of the show. There, there are two very important issues and it's, it's logically possible to think that Trump and Biden were right to, to put us on a pathway to get out. And that the execution of the pathway was a catastrophe. It's also possible to take the position it was right to decide to get out and that as bad as, and tough as this is, there, there wasn't some happier solution, even though we wish there was. It's also possible to think that it was a mistake to get out, that we should have maintained the status quo. I suppose in theory, it's possible to think it was a mistake to get out, but that we executed it well. Although I don't know why anyone would think that. I don't hear any voices saying that. Um, but... It is probably, I agree, let me let me try to find a point of consensus here. I, I can easily imagine that people are who are newly tuning into this issue are focusing 
with blinders on because of the the terrible nature of this end game and failing to realize that insofar as they are objecting in general to withdraw, not to the execution of the withdrawal, but to the very idea of withdrawal, there I'm sure there are lots of people who have long since forgotten, maybe never knew, that the Trump administration also was committed to the withdrawal pathway. Um, and and that's bad. Like we don't need we need to have clarity as to the um, the bipartisan nature of the decision to wind down operations in Afghanistan, but but the but the end games executions, to me, uh, a conceptually different topic, and one could feel just mad at the Biden administration for that. Well, then one ought to provide more nuance. I mean, I just I just the amount of sort of hand wringing and and whitewashing that was going on this weekend was pretty disgusting to me. But I, yeah, I. I think uh, I, I recommend Twitter free weekends for well, all of us because I mean, it was hard to follow what was going on without Twitter. This I weekend. know that's you just put your I, I bag on Twitter all the time, but I rarely take my eyes off of it because I find it's just a much more efficient way to see what's happening around the world in terms of news reporting, uh, because the journalists, you know, there's you never quite know who's going to break the next important story. And it's such a great aggregator. Of, of those sorts of things. Um, there needs to be some brilliant setting where you could somehow pull the opinion stuff out, the opinion filter. You just, you know, like nine out of every 10 tweets is just blocked from view and you're only getting sort of the latest uh, news article. But of course, there are those who would say that the news articles are themselves opinionful. So that will never work, I'm sure. Wishful thinking on my part. <sighs> and I'd say like, hey, can I cheer you up? Let's talk baseball and the Mets. That's not. <laughs> okay. The, can, are we ready to, to put our sorrows behind us at least a little bit and turn, turn at least to the lighter fare of frivolity? Is there anything light? Well, let's let's turn that page and, and pour one out for the Mets who seem to have gone from bad to worse since last oh, week. No, I, I tweeted la- at some point last night on the Mets way to losing 14 to four on national television where not one but two position players pitched in the ninth inning. I tweeted something about how I, I'd like to thank the Mets for freeing up so much of my time over the next six weeks. <laughs> yes. To say nothing of October. And and I, I believe I saw that DeGrom's been shut down again? For another two weeks, but who I, knows? I, do you think the GM is looking at this thing like, oh, this is a lost season after all? Shoot, never mind. Let's just heal him up. I, mean, and I, I, I think it's a the egg problem, right? Like, I mean, I think the question is, is Syndergaard going to be back in time to make a difference? If you bring DeGrom back, is it going to be in time to make a difference? And I think, you know, I mean, if the Mets are five games out in two weeks, it's going to be hard to justify doing that. Yeah, it, there is something to be said at a certain point for shut, shutting them both down for this season and letting them come back, you know, as well refreshed as possible to start next year. And yep. one hopes that whatever adjustment issues Lindor was having will be over. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe Baez's back won't hurt so much anymore. And But that's what it's like to be a Mets fan. Indeed. Um what okay? We got to talk about the. We can end on a happy note because we can talk about the Field of Dreams game. Did you watch? Did, did what did you make of that? I only got to watch a little bit of it. I thought it was cool. That's it. I expected so much more uh, love and enthusiasm for such a for a time when baseball is sort of just being so roundly criticized for not keeping up with the times. It was such an expression of the sort of the the I don't know the the romantic the romanticism of the game. Um, and, and maybe that's yeah. the problem. It was like such a uh, such a deliberate and over the top and over the top. And, but I don't know. Maybe this is just me. It, it totally worked for me. 
Sand. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the old school baseball is just it was just like them to have a nine to eight game with seven home runs. You know, that's <laughs> both worlds, my friend. I, I got to say, I just loved seeing the real deal players wearing the old jerseys yeah. and uniforms yeah. coming out of the corn. That was cool. I will was- say, I mean, baseball. You know, baseball has one thing that no other professional sport has, which is the uniqueness of field dimension. So it does seem yeah. like baseball can do more with this whole like you know creative settings and sizes for baseball fields well they're fools if they don't go back to iowa once a year for for this sort of mid this is the real midsummer classic my goodness i want to say i mean i you know i i like field of dreams as a movie the book shoeless joe is much better oh yeah um, yeah, yeah. No, but, field of dreams is a, it's a slow film in some ways there, there are better baseball movies Mm, I bet I bet you'll hear about that on Twitter. For there are better. I mean, there are better Kevin Costner baseball movies. <laughs> Bull Durham, Bull Durham. Yeah, it's uh, it's true. It was kind of fun to see Costner himself. I'm glad they they got him out there. That was pretty neat. Um, uh-huh. Hats off, you know, Tim Anderson. You know, it reminded me. It was a little bit like the night. I think the night that Cal Ripken broke the record, the Iron Man record. I was there. Were you and he he hit a homer in that game, right? Didn't he do he it? Hit a home, so no, wait, Cal Ripken homered in both game twenty one thirty when he tied the record. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Orioles won eight nothing, eight being his number. And game twenty one thirty one when he broke the record. I was at twenty one thirty one. Is that the one where he took the the, the incredible twenty two minute lap, lap where he did yeah. the lap? That yes. that to me was the most uh, you know life imitating art magic baseball moment I'd ever seen straight out of the natural. But I thought there were serious elements of that with Tim Anderson's Homer. Um, that was pretty darn cool. So hats if only his name was if only his name was Moonlight Graham, right? <laughs> it was it was very cool. What a night! Um, uh, have you and and Heather by any chance been watching White Lotus? Uh, no, actually, I did read a review and it got it caught my attention. Are you recommending or are you going to steer me away from it? It's pretty. I mean, it's it is it is dark. But it is it is it is an it is an intriguing watch. Karen and I are up to the finale, which we did not watch last night live. Well, you will be happy to know we did finally start in on Ted Lasso season two. Ah. So, uh, do you want to? Can we say a few words about at least the beginning of the season? Sure. Uh, I have an opinion about this. So, if you don't want to hear this, obviously tune out. Um, so I was I loved season one, loved Ted Lasso, loved everything about season one. Uh-oh, I feel there's and a button I coming. really did not like the first two episodes I've seen so far. It huh. felt it felt contrived. It felt uncreative. It felt like uh, sort of almost like an old HBO show trying to shock you a little bit with a little bit of uh, you know not very relevant to the plot. Uh, shall we say adult behavior? Um, that just felt out of place for the show. Like they were just trying to find a way to get your attention. Uh, I just was deeply disappointed and I'm holding out hope. It's all being done towards service of a, of a fulfilling plot development that comes later on. But Steve, give me hope it is after episodes one and two, does it start picking up speed and, and a, little become bit. a little bit better? A little bit, but I, I, I think, you know, two is not quite yet one. Um, and maybe right, you never like, can be, right? This is a sophomore jinx is a thing. Um, uh, yeah. Well, come on, Ted. Coach, Coach Beard. I need that. Oh, I do I love Roy. Roy. Roy as a color commentator is the greatest thing in the history of the world. Have you, are you up to that yet? 
Um, oh, I said the beginning of that. So the only thing I like, I just, I like everything about Roy Kent. Um, and in having him on there, uh, dropping the F-bombs and all the rest on the first episode, that was pretty fun. I mean, that's kind of an old bit, right? There, I can't think of other examples, but I know there, there are a lot of examples of, you know, the guy who gets in that situation. It, it reminded me of Love Actually with uh, uh, What's-His-Face, you know, um, Uncle Billy <laughs> getting on the TV show and, and dropping the F-bombs on whatever the countdown show, Top of the Pops. So had a little bit of that flavor, always good for a laugh. I guess I'll keep watching if only for that, but uh, I need I need Ted to, to step it up. All right. I guess we've covered the bases. <sighs> we don't have a show title. I think the title is just Afghanistan. Yeah, good. All right. I don't I don't think I don't think I don't think a, a, a cheesy or sappy title is called nah, for the right. events. You're right about that. Well, right. hopefully yeah. next week we will have less horrifyingly sober and depressing things to talk about. Yep. We will uh you know, it, it is possible that a week from now it doesn't look as bad as we're all fearing. It's possible. I'm not going to bet on it, though. I, I, I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if you watched any of the videos of the Kabul airport today. I did. No, it's not good. Yeah, foreseeable is the the phrase. All right, everybody, stay safe out there. Adios.